We continue in our study of First Peter, the section on the social conduct of the Christian, how Christians are to behave in different relationships. And the structure, as we've seen, is, first of all, he addresses everyone, um, and then, specifically, he addresses slaves. The middle section is the example of Christ that we are to follow. And then what we looked at last week, instructions for wives and husbands, and today what we will look at is instruction for everyone in verses 8 through 12. And if you look at verse number 8, it begins, finally, all of you. That is that Peter is speaking, he is writing to tell all the Christians reading this letter, as opposed to what he wrote, for example, to the slaves, to wives and to husbands. Because after all, not all Christians at that point were slaves or wives or husbands. If you look at verse number 13 of chapter 2, which is where this section begins, you could insert or understand Peter to be saying, all of you submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. And now here at the end he says, finally, all of you, and then he gives his instructions. Last Sunday we looked at what Peter had to say to Christian wives and husbands. To Christian wives, Peter calls on them to submit, and that is to find and occupy responsibly their place in society. This is not a call for passivity or unreflective submission. Just do whatever you're supposed, you know, whatever you're told to do. That's what you're supposed to do. As we've seen, submission is not an expression of being forced. It is an expression of freedom. The claims of humans and human institutions, including those of husbands, do not supersede the claims of God. Peter tells them that even a disbelieving husband, even in that situation, a Christian wife is to occupy responsibly her place. By the way, last Sunday I made the distinction between unbelievers and disbelievers, and specifically with regard to husbands, that uh, a disbeliever is someone who is not simply, eh, I'm not quite so sure, but who actively rejects the gospel, as the King James puts it, one who disobeys the word. But that's not the end of the story. Peter says that such a husband may, in fact, be won over by the gospel. Without words, he puts it, by the behavior of their wives. And this behavior includes, as we saw, purity and reverence. These are not Roman dispositions. These are not normal dispositions in the Mediterranean world. They are clearly Christian. And as I said, one could argue that Hmm, that might be attractive to some pagans to see a pure woman, uh, a woman who has reverence. That that might be attractive, but this is not what Paul or what Peter is calling for. He's not saying you need, just need to fit in, but rather you are to have integrity as a Christian in your life. This is the way you are supposed to be. In the midst of difficulty, imagine being married to a man who not only does not believe the gospel, but who actively rejects the gospel. The wife is to have integrity. Courageously, she is to be steadfast and to stand for what is right. A Christian wife is to understand who she is, that her beauty comes from, not from the external, which fades, but from the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And she is to trust that her husband, as the head of the marriage and the household, is doing what is best, but in fact he may not. God is in control, and she should entrust herself to his care. 
the example of Sarah that is given um, is not, in my opinion, primarily that she called Abraham Lord. We only have one place where she did, and that was not directly. But rather that she entrusted herself to God's care. Abraham was the head of the household, and in a sense, he was her master or Lord. But she entrusted herself to God. She and her husband were aliens and strangers in Canaan, as we are aliens and strangers in this world. And we have to make decisions. Well, if you've read the book of Genesis, Abraham made some pretty disastrous decisions. Decisions that put her life in danger. But Sarah entrusted herself to God that God would take care of her. And in fact, he did. One could even say that as a disobedient or disbelieving husband might treat their wife badly. Abraham, as a disobedient man from time to time, treated his wife badly. But rather than giving way to fear, Sarah trusted God. And then to Christian husbands, Peter calls on them to live with their wives in an understanding way, to treat her with respect as your partner, protecting her as one who is the weaker, to remember that she is your joint heir of the gracious gift of life, and to realize that your communion with God is affected by your relationship with your wife. I said last week that the closest human relationship, the relationship to one's spouse, must be carefully cherished if one wishes a close relationship with God. If your relationship with God is not a priority with you, it's not a big deal, then I think it will ultimately be reflected in the way you treat other people and the way that you treat your wife, husbands. As Peter sees it, uh, your, your prayers will be hindered if you don't do what you should. Today, Peter addresses all believers to whom the letter is written. Look, if you would, I'll read verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I believe this passage can be put into three different sections. The first is our relationship with other Christians within the Christian family. That's verse number eight. And then secondly, our relationship with disbelievers, those who would insult us for the Christian faith. That's verse nine. And then verses 10, 11, and 12, he gives scriptural support for his position. Let's begin at verse number eight. This verse focuses on our dispositions within the Christian community. Rather than naming behaviors, Peter identifies qualities of character. This is the way that we are supposed to be. As one commentator put it, in a way that is not always appreciated in the modern world, persons only do what they are. And so in this section, rather than dealing with what you do, Peter addresses who we are how we are to be, and then that will in fact be reflected in our actions. Peter emphasizes 
the formation of Christian character and community while recognizing that we are formed, we are shaped by our relationships and this in fact will bear fruit in our relationships with one another. Verse number 8 may seem very familiar to you, but in fact the words that Peter chooses to use are very rare in the New Testament. Some of them are only found here. They've been translated into English in ways that are accessible to us, but perhaps they are so accessible that we miss, I think, the power of what Peter is saying. First of all, live in harmony with one another. This word that he uses, homophone, uh, homo means the same, of the same mind, it's only used here in the New Testament. It refers to a common pattern of thought, having a shared mind and a shared heart. That is, we are to have the same aim of serving God and loving one another. This is important for people like us who live in an age of radical individualism, particularly where one's faith, one's practice, one's spirituality is generally seen as private, my relationship with God. Where, as I've said before, and I got this from Oz Guinness, one's faith is privately engaging but socially irrelevant. It's my own personal relationship with Jesus, as opposed to I am, in fact, part of a larger community. We're not to be uniform, that is, we're not to be identical, but we are to be marked by unity. And therefore, we are to work at this together, not in isolation. This means that while all of us have a particular calling, we do have the calling that we are to stand together. If you will allow me to digress, this is something I've spoken of in the past. The issue of vocation or calling. A vocation or calling is a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. That is, God has given to every human being, I'm convinced of this, not just Christians, but to every human being he has given gifts and abilities and a calling or a vocation. Now, some people object to this, this idea of it being ordained and imposed by God. But consider the alternatives, that your result or your situation is simply the result of sheer chance. That your situation is a result of your own will and your own choice. And the big question is, what is the purpose toward which you are working in your life? If God has called us to salvation by faith in his Son think we're happy about that, would we be unhappy that he has chosen a calling for each one of us? The purpose of our calling, the reason God has called us, is for the common good. Those around us, our family, our community, our neighbors, the city, our state, even our nation. One might say, well, wait a minute, I thought God called us to serve him. Yes, but we serve God when we serve others in our calling. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about calling, and he uses it in two ways. One is that we are called to be children of God, when the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and God calls us to be his people. The second way he uses it, though, is what we would call a personal or particular calling. That is that God has made us all differently. We all have different abilities. I don't know if you experience this, but sometimes I look at someone and they're they're able to do something that I... I just find amazing because I cannot do that. But that is a gift from God. Each of us have gifts and a calling from God. 
when I went through calling in a series, we laid out three rules with regard to all personal callings. The first is everybody has a personal calling that they are to walk in. This is important for us in our culture because I think the ideal, what people think is the ideal, is to have no calling whatsoever. I think a lot of people, if given the choice, if you could say to them, what would you want to do? They would want to win the lottery so that they would never have to work another day in their life. And that is the gifts that God had given them, I guess, would basically not be used because their lives would be set. But let us understand that if you have no calling, then there is no sense that someone is calling you. In embracing our callings, we are saying that God is the one who calls us. So everyone must have a calling. Secondly, the particular calling that God has given to each one is the best that we can have. If God has chosen for us, don't you think, in fact, he would know best for us? The third rule, and this is why I've digressed to bring it in here, the practice of one's personal calling must be joined with the general calling of a Christian. While everyone has a calling, Christian or non-Christian, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the Christian realizes, oh, God is calling. This is what he has given me. He's given me gifts. He's given me the desire to do certain things. And that is what I will pursue. Having said all that, I think it is clear that as we live our lives as Christians, in the callings that God has given us, it must harmonize with my duties toward other Christians. I'm to be of the same mind. I must resist the temptation to think that what God has called me to do is so important that I can neglect other Christians, that I, in fact, don't need to help them, that, in fact, I don't need to be around them, I don't need to harmonize with them, if you wish, I don't need to be of the same mind. I'm a Christian, I have a calling, I have a personal relationship with God. We must resist this. We are the people of God together. We are to have a common pattern of thought and a shared heart and mind. The second thing he says is be sympathetic. Again, this is the only time we find this word in its form in the New Testament. It means literally to suffer with people. To enter into their experiences. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is only a matter of negative. We can, in fact, share their joy and we can share their sorrow to lessen their burden. Paul wrote in Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And the key to this is relating so closely to others that we feel that what happens to them is something that is happening to us. So we don't have to fake this, this sympathy that, oh, I want to sympathize with you. But in fact, what they are experiencing, we experience that as well. And how can we do that? We have to surrender our independence. That is to say, this is my life and I will do with it what I want. And, you know, if necessary, from time to time, so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of run out and sympathize with people. But this is my life. No. My life is joined with your lives. We are the people of God together. It's not all about me. 
and my experiences. It is us together. The third thing he says is love as brothers. This we have seen before. And in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere for your love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, love the brotherhood of believers. One could say that love is basic to everything that Peter is saying in verse number 8. Um, but here he puts it in as one aspect of the total picture. One author put it this way, the ideal Christian community is one which produces between people who have no blood ties the same bonds of affection as are expected between brothers. That is, by blood we are not related to each other, but we are to love each other as brothers do. And here, I think the author has in mind that wonderful verse in Psalm 131, or 133, verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Remember that we are aliens and strangers in the world? Well, part of what mitigates that is we may be aliens and strangers, but we are brothers and sisters together. I remember several weeks ago when we started going through this, uh, someone commented that in the Ode, uh, Odes of Solomon that we sing at the end, there's that line, and I will be no stranger. And I said that we are strangers. Okay. Well, we are strangers to the world, but we are not to be strangers to each other. We are brothers and sisters. The fourth thing is that we are to be compassionate. Here we see, I think, a big difference between our world and the ancient world. For us, uh, love and compassion comes from the heart. In the ancient world, it came from your entrails, from your intestines, your bowels. Um, tender mercies are to come from your inward parts. We're not merely to sympathize and to give words of exp you know, expressing sympathy. We are, in fact, to have actual feelings of concern for one another, which are expressed in action. The fifth thing that he says is that we are to be humble. Um, this, the, the way that he uses this word, this is peculiar to Peter in the New Testament. We don't find this anywhere else. In the secular world of his time, it had the bad sense of being feeble-minded, of being faint-hearted. And in fact, if it were not for its use one time in the Old Testament, we might go in that direction. But in Proverbs 29, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. This is what it means to be humble. If we are to fulfill the four things that we've looked at so far, we must, in fact, be humble. We cannot be independent. We can't be individualistic. We can't, can't all be about me. But I am to consider others before I consider myself. Humble people recognize they are conscious of their position as a creature of God. They are entirely dependent upon God. Everything that person has comes from God. That's what a humble person recognizes. And as a result, one can see another person and think more highly of that person than they do of themselves. As, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I may be good at certain things. That's fine. You may be good at certain things. That's fine. Humility is recognizing that what we have comes from God. 
It's not something we have on, on our own. Something that we should consider as we study this is that humility was the one Christian character that was most out of step with the Roman world. Modesty and uh, moderation, that was attractive to the Romans. Not that they practiced it, but it was attractive to them. But humility was something that slaves did. People who were at the bottom of society, the marginalized of society, those are the people you called humble. And I think what Peter is doing here is he's taking the very slander that people would use against Christians. Oh, look at those humble Christians, not meeting it in a polite way. Peter now says, yes, that's who we are supposed to be. The world sees it negatively. We are to see it positively. We are to be humble people. If we take these five things together, they point toward relationships. And I would say intimate relationships, relationships that are oriented not toward me, but toward others, that my focus is not to be about myself. Peter doesn't give us strategic behaviors. This is the way you're supposed to behave when you're around other Christians. Rather, he says, this is who you are supposed to be. These are the qualities that your life is to embody. It's not to say that he is unconcerned with actions. But I think Peter trusts that if, by God's grace, we take on these qualities, they, in fact, will result in actions. I think this will become clear as we get to verses 10 through 12. So, verse 8, our relationship with other Christians. What about those who are not Christians? In verse number 9. Now, interestingly enough, in these two verses, Peter doesn't make the distinction that I am, uh, that others have. That verse 8 is about Christians, uh, verse 9 about non-Christians. I think that verse 8 is about Christians is, is self-evident. That in fact we are supposed to be of the same mind. Um, I can't be of the same mind with a non-believer, with a disbeliever. So I think that's self-evident. Verse number 9, again, I'm reading into it, but it, you know when he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing... I think he is looking outside the community. Granted, Christians don't always get along and have been known to insult each other from time to time and even do evil against each other. But here I think he's looking outside the community, outside the congregation. If nothing else, from verse number nine, we should learn this, that as the people of God, we are not to live in isolation. We're not to sort of join a commune and live separately from society, build walls and keep the world out. I don't think we do that so much. Well, maybe we do in our society where the church is something we do on Sundays. And then the rest of the week, you know, it's very, very private. Privately engaging, socially irrelevant. And in that sense, we isolate ourselves from the world. Peter would say that this is not what we are supposed to do. At first glance, it might seem that verse number eight is all about attitudes and verse number nine is all about actions. Um, I would argue that this is not the case because there's something that ties them both together, and that is love. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear these words. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Please hear me here. For the Christian, there is no double standard. We are to love our brothers and sisters. We are to love our enemies. We cannot say, I love these people and these people I do not love. Granted, in the church, we are to be of one mind. Our love takes on different dimensions. It's far more intimate. But we cannot say, well, you know, I love Christians, but non-Christians, I, you know, I don't love them. And it, we shouldn't say, I love them because I want them to get saved. We love them because they're made in the image of God. We don't have a double standard. I think the church has oftentimes been guilty of that. Love means foregoing the luxury of vengeance. Calculated retaliation. The world in which Peter lived, in which he wrote this letter, one was concerned to preserve his status and his reputation. I don't know, is ours much different than that? I was thinking this morning, for some reason, of uh, Daniel Borson's definition of celebrity, of someone who's well-known for being well-known. Um, you don't do anything, actually, but you're just well-known. And we want to be well-known. We want our, well, I don't know, but our picture on the face of People magazine. You know, we want people to know who we are. We want to be on the Internet. And we don't like it when someone disrespects us. What do we see in the example of Jesus? Look back, if you would, at chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What Peter calls on his readers, that is us, to do is extraordinary. It's amazing when you consider two things. The first that we, we've already seen is that loving your enemy means you refuse to differentiate between a non-Christian and a Christian. Again, there are, there's a question of degrees. I'm of one mind with Christians. I'm not of one mind with non-Christians. But I don't think what Peter is saying is that, well, you should, you should have compassion for non-Christians when they are in need, a la the Good Samaritan. When you see somebody in need, you should help them. And I don't think he's saying that we should have love for humanity in general. He is saying that we should love those who stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who are in active opposition to Jesus' followers. We are to love those who curse us and hate us. I don't know about you, but that's fairly amazing. Uh, primarily because that's not the first thing that comes to mind when somebody curses me. The second matter to consider is that we are not to be passive. When they curse us, when they insult us, we don't just sort of wave at them meekly and say, God bless you. Um, we are to proactively act toward them 
he says we are to respond with a blessing. That is not simply to say the word, God bless you, but to confer on them God's blessings. Peter isn't simply saying, well, you should speak nicely of those who hate you. You know, they say bad words, you should say nice words in return. Um, I think Peter's going way beyond that. We are to pray for those who hate us and curse us. We are to ask that God would one day bring them into his family, into the church, the community of faith. We want God to bless them. And again, we struggle with blessing because we, you know, we think blessing, we think money. No. What is the ultimate that God could do is to save these people. This runs so contrary to our fallen nature. What Peter attacks here, I don't know if that's too strong a word, is that which is engraved in our fallen nature, and that is vengeance. We want revenge. When somebody does something back does something to us, we want to get back at them. And hopefully back in such a way that they'll never attempt it again. That we will teach them a lesson. In scripture we notice two things. First of all, that private vengeance is replaced with community justice. So we see in the Old Testament that the community is to act, however imperfectly, as agents of God. They are to administer justice. Paul deals with this in Romans 13. So we have laws, and when people break the laws, the community, through the police, through the judges, all these things, administers justice. But what about those things outside the law? Those things for which there are no laws? This is what Jesus is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus prohibits claiming the right of vengeance for all perceived wrongs the things that are not against the law, for someone to say bad things against me, uh, I might want to take them to court for slander, but there may be things they do that the law simply doesn't cover. I do not, I should not claim the right of private revenge or vengeance. I am not to retaliate. I am not to retaliate. Peter tells us to this you were called. This is part of our calling as God's people. So that you may inherit a blessing. This is the second time, by the way, in this letter that he has said to this you were called. Do you remember the first? It's in chapter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What is the to this you were called? What is the this that he's referring to? Well, there it is referring to enduring. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. What about here in verse number 9? To this you were called. What is my calling from God? I am not to repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing. Why? That I may inherit a blessing. Now, this sounds very... Uh, I don't know, it almost has a commercial sense to it that if, if you want God to bless you, then you need to be nice to other people. Uh, I think it's quite the reverse. Because God has blessed you, you in turn should bless others. Because God has forgiven you, you should forgive others. Those who curse you, those who hate you, 
Do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans 5? When we were God's enemies, he loved us and sent his son. That's you and me. Remember years ago, someone saying to me, well, I never was an enemy of God. Yes, you were. That is our natural status when we come into the world. To put it positively, if we have received God's blessing, we are to share God's blessing with others, even our enemies. Now, for all this that we've looked at so far, the big question might come up, why? Why should we do this? This is the third part of our text, the scriptural support. Let's read it again. Follow, if you would, verses 10, 11, and 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is taken from Psalm 34, which, by the way, in chapter 2, Peter had referred to Uh, taste and see that the Lord is, is good. This is from Psalm 34. The psalm follows a pattern we find in many of the psalms, and that is of rescue and vindication for those who have suffered. Those who have suffered unjustly call out to God, and God rescues them. He vindicates them. The rest of the psalm, by the way, deals with this as well. And just listen as I read. This is from Psalm 34, beginning of verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. If you look carefully at what Peter does in quoting this psalm, and I think he's hoping that we would do what we've done, and that is look at the rest of the psalm, what he does here is he ties three narratives or three stories together. The first is the story of Israel, the righteous of Israel, who suffered unjustly. The second narrative is that of Jesus, which is mentioned at the end of chapter 2. The third narrative is us, when we suffer unjustly. And if the storyline really does move from suffering to vindication, we see that in Israel, we see that in Jesus, we may not yet see it in our lives, but we've seen it in the first two narratives, then the hostility that a Christian faces cannot be the whole story. It can't be the end of the story. There's got to be something else. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. That's the way it was in the life of Jesus. And by God's grace, that's the way it will be in our lives. There's something else to consider, though. I don't know if you noticed it. And that is, in, in quoting Psalm 34, there seems to be an emphasis on the place of speech. Um, in verse number 9, he talked about insult with insult, but with blessing. Here in uh, verse 10, we must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. And then in verse 12, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Speech ethics is important. How we speak, what we say is incredibly important. And we are to avoid, we are to shun harmful and destructive words. Jesus told us this in a passage I think oftentimes we'd rather forget, Matthew 12. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. 
You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. This is the verse we'd rather avoid. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Speech, what we say is important. Because speech is, in fact, action. It is action. Oftentimes we see it as sort of a, more of a passive, you know, I could hurt you or I could say something against you. But both, in fact, are actions. Speech is important because ultimately it reveals what is in our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What I am committed to, who I am as a person, is revealed in my speech. One writer put it this way, speech is a form of world formation. It's a powerful thing to say. Speech is a form of world formation, potent to include and exclude, to build up and to tear down. When people say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, they're not telling the truth. Words do incredible damage. Incredible damage. And we as God's people may have people say destructive things against us. That's fine. We see that in the life of David, in the life of Israel. We see it in the life of Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised if it happens in our life. But what we see in the life of Israel and in the life of Jesus is that's not the whole story. In fact, one might even say that's not the real story. Because what people are saying about us is not in fact true. And God will vindicate us. Peter is using words in this letter to create a world and to shape an identity. To say to his readers, this is who you are. This is how you are to be. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to speak. In the lives of those first century Christians, destructive words were thrown their way day after day. And how does Peter respond? He says... Look at scripture. Look at the life of Jesus. Peter says, you know the contest where people say bad things against each other? Opt out. You're not part of that world. You're not part of that contest. It's not tit for tat as a child of God. Instead, we are to pursue God's peace, God's shalom. And we are to involve ourselves in shaping or reshaping the world. In a world that is marked by ugly speech, destructive speech and insults and evil, we are in fact to love our enemies and we are to bless them. We are to pray for them. The words that we use in response to evil and hostility should not be evil and hostile, but in fact should be words of love. And in doing this, the world can be reshaped. The world can be reformed. And that is our calling as God's people. In this section, Peter tells Christians how we are to treat one another, how we are to live with one another, the relationship within the church, the Christian community. 
If that's all we had to work on, we'd have our hands full. But there's more than that because we don't live in isolation. We are not to live in isolation. He tells us how we are to deal with those who are not Christians, those who are antagonistic to the faith. And then he tells us, this is the way, in a sense, it's always been. I mean, from Cain and Abel on, there is this hostility. But we see that God vindicated Israel, that he vindicated Jesus, and he will one day vindicate us. And so we are to love one another. We are to love our enemies. And in our speech, we are to take great care. Great care. Because what we say shapes the world. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a culture in which, in many ways, speech has degenerated. Oftentimes, as Christians, we get all bothered by profanity. And we fail to recognize that sometimes very clean words can do great damage. We who are your people are called to be of the same mind. We're to be compassionate one toward another. We're to sympathize with each other. We are to be humble. And the temptation is so strong to turn our backs on the world and just hang out with each other. But in fact, we are not only to love one another, we are to love those who hate us and those who curse us. And in a world of evil and of lies and of ugly speech, we are to speak truth. We are to seek peace. For myself, this does not come naturally. Retaliation and vengeance is the first impulse. We pray that by your spirit and your grace, you would work in our lives. We would, again, by your grace, seek to put to death the desire for vengeance, the desire to retaliate, to meet hostility with hostility but instead follow the example we find in the Old Testament, supremely the example we find in Jesus. I thank you for this letter that Peter wrote, for our brothers and sisters back in the first century who faced far greater hostility than we ever have. I thank you that we can listen as Peter speaks to them. We can apply it to our lives as well. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we look forward to our time together afterwards. Listen to singing. May your grace and your spirit be with us through the rest of this day and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.